Decorating Pages is a podcast dedicated to taking you behind the scenes of the designs of your favorite TV shows and films. Each episode, I'll be sharing design stories from some of Hollywood's most famous sets. Interviews from set decorators, production designers, directors, and actors about creating the look of TV and film, about their design inspirations, and stories that take sets from page to screen. Hello, and welcome to Decorating Pages. I'm your host, Kim Wanup. Well, I moved. (laughs) I worked six days a week the last two weeks, and I mommed some twins, and I'm exhausted. Hence why I didn't get this episode up last week, and I apologize for that, especially to Jim, because I thought I would, and I just am exhausted. (laughs) So I'm glad I'm getting it up this week even though I'm still exhausted. Um, this show is brutal, man. I mean, on top of moving, this show is just brutal. We have four location days this week. I have a law office of 15 rooms, an Upper East Side apartment, a dated lawyer's office, a day spa, and then, you know, a 65 cubicle Newsweek bullpen as the cherry on top. I really have to thank my lead man, Patrick Albin, and my buyers, Ashley Rice, and Jennifer Ho and Haley Contestable. They're amazing. My coordinator, my buyers, my crew, my swing crew pulled off this Newsweek and I can't wait for you to see it. You're going to shit. <laughs> it really turned out well. I'm super impressed with them. Um, but I think I'm at a point in the show where you think you're going to break. And I know when you're on a hard show, I, you go through this and it's rough. You think like, oh, can I get out of this? Can I, can I just leave? If you're an art director, I guess you can just leave. I've always, I've always noticed that art directors, they get a better offer. They're out of there. Um, not so much with decorators. Decorators, you got to stick around. Um, but it's so much. It's every detail and as much time as you think you have, it's not enough. It's just a, it's just a brutal show. And I think I, or we, or you, you, if you are in this business, work ourselves into a mental, (laughs) mental and physical exhaustion. And we put our jobs above it all. And I know that it probably affected the smoothness of my move because I'm focused on so many other things, but I don't know. I don't know. I just moved with twins. I work six days a week and, and this little podcast, which I really enjoy doing, suffered a little, was postponed a week. So yeah, Uh, you know, anywho, that wasn't cry for help. (laughs) I just thought I would express the, uh, the, uh, tiredness (laughs) that I know that we all have. Uh, what did I watch? Nothing. I'm tired. (laughs) Uh, I did finish The Lady of the Dale and what a story, man. I don't care. You got to watch it. It's not really about the con artist sense of it, but this, this transsexual went through so much in her life to be who she was. Like, I just applaud, uh, applaud her so much and it's just a much deeper meaning than this guy who's a girl who's a who's a con artist it's really good so I hope that you watch it um as a little bit of a comfort watch while I was packing up them my last night I watched Tootsie god I love Tootsie I mean everyone in it is just so good Terry Garr I've been stuck in that bathroom for 10 minutes. I mean, she's phenomenal. Dabney Coleman, Gina Davis, everyone, Bill Murray, but everyone in it is so good. And I just love it. I love the flow of it. I love the look of it. I love the costumes. I love everything about it. That New York apartment of Michael's is just, it just nailed it. I I, I guess you nailed it. I don't know what what 
an 80s apartment in the New York look like, but I think that was it for like struggling actors. Nailed it. The piano, the broken sink, like, ugh, I love it. Um, the only other thing I have watched, besides Housewives, of course, um, is that first episode of, uh, what is it, Pharaoh versus Alan? Or Alan versus Pharaoh? On HBO, it just started about Woody Allen um, sexually abusing his daughter and then, you know, marrying his stepdaughter or whatever. Um, you know, without, without all that, I'm not a Woody Allen fan. There, I said it. You can turn the podcast off now. Um, I can appreciate his comedy and um, what he has done for film when he was good I don't think making a film every year makes you great but I definitely think he abused his daughter I'll say that and uh it's sad it's a sad documentary and I'm sure it's going to get worse but it's good it's on HBO if anybody wants to catch that I haven't that's all I've watched I haven't I haven't watched anything else so yeah On this episode, I speak with production designer Jim Bissell. It has been a goal of mine to speak with Jim Bissell since I started this podcast because he was on my wish list from the beginning. Selfishly, I want to interview people who inspire me, and I believe who inspire you in the world of cinema and TV. Jim Bissell has so many films that I cherish that, of course, I totally dorked out in this interview. <laughs> so get ready for that. He has a fascinating origin story, man. It, I mean, it just put him in the sights of like Steven Spielberg so early on. And because he's so good, he has a background in theater design. I mean, one of his first films was E.T. We talk about comparing spaceship design from E.T. to his latest Midnight Sky he basically works for JPL now because he can design like a spaceship. It's incredible. Um, he tells about some Easter eggs from his design in Rocketeer that were from E.T. That was really interesting. Um, the magic of trashing the house and Harry and the Hendersons. He, he won an Emmy in 1980 for his work in Palmerstown, USA, followed by a BAFTA nomination for production design on E.T., he has an Oscar nomination for Good Night and Good Luck. His three ADG nominations. He has the ADG Lifetime Achievement Award in 2015, which he's still going pretty strong. So I don't know why, uh, I don't know why they already gave it to him. But what I just described is only uh, episode one of this. I'm gonna give you two episodes of Jim because it's that good, and his stories are so good. His memory is unbelievable. The second episode, we talk about the Twilight movie. Um, We talk about Jumanji uh, 300 and the CGI uh, aspect of design. He worked with George Clooney six times on Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, Good Night and Good Luck, The Spiderwick Chronicle. Oh, that wasn't George. Sorry. He also did Spiderwick Chronicles. Um, He designed a $5 million garage for Rogue Nation (laughs) for Mission Impossible. I mean... He's, his designs are amazing and you've seen them. You've, his work is incredible. Uh, I have listened to this interview at least five times since we spoke because I am entranced with his language of describing his process and his experiences of his career. He is simply enchanting. I don't know. I wish I had another hour with him. So I hope you enjoy. I know I was I was super lucky during the pandemic of like emailing people and being like I know you're not doing anything <laughs> I know you got some time <laughs> so it was uh it was good I, it's it's amazing I I absolutely just love 
hearing especially how people got into the business and or like what keeps them in it because <laughs> it's it's not the easiest thing in the world but no but it's a it's a you know we're all part of the carnival and it's a, yeah there's always a lot of interesting stories i um i love that you have et behind you i rewatched it again last night with my two two-year-olds um they watched a, li- a little piece of it and um it's just the best movie. It's just absolutely the best movie. I don't. Everything about it is so magical and makes you. I don't know. It's so great. Did you know that we when you read the script? Do you think? Did you or were you like, what? This is weird. <laughs> oh no, no! I love the script and I really love the writer. Melissa Matheson was uh, just so fantastic to work with, and she's she was such a lovely spirit. Miss her on the planet. Wow. Well, that's a sin. I mean, I can imagine being surrounded and knowing that it's, I mean, it wasn't like Steven Spielberg at the time, but it was still Steven Spielberg. You must have felt like... Steven Spielberg. I mean, he'd done Close Encounters. He'd done... uh, Jaws. He'd done Jaws. He'd done... uh, He'd just come off of Indiana Jones, the first one. Oh, wow. That's right. So, I mean, it wasn't like, uh, it wasn't like he was some unknown. True. That's true. How did you now? That is noted as your first production designer job. Like, no, it wasn't. It wasn't right. No. I was like, how did he? No. How did he jump? I mean, obviously you art directed before, but um, were you? Was it like meeting with him and 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 going over your ideas for the vision and everything that you got it, or did you know him? No, it's actually a, it's a good story. Um, I'll start at the beginning. Okay. Which was, I was trained in, uh, in theater design. I have a BFA in theater from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Mm. And, uh, and I went to New York first to see what I could find. And I didn't know a soul there. I didn't know a soul anybody where out of North Carolina, to be honest. But uh, I just sort of fell my nose and jumped into the pool. <laughs> and the first job I got was um, as a... Uh, supposedly as a gopher for a for a little small boutique uh, commercial company but what they really wanted me to do is they were not they weren't teamster signatories so i was scabbing teamsters i (laughs) i would go to camera service center at like two in the morning and pick up their equipment for the next day's shoot you know and then drive the truck lock it up in front of my uh my place and and then go out and get a couple hours sleep and then go take take the equipment to uh to the shoot Mm. And it was uh, it was fun because I got to really learn about the equipment. I got to learn about you know who did what to whom, and uh, and and eventually I moved on from that to uh, to location scouting and doing a, a lot of other stuff. But primarily, I moved forward in production. I didn't get any jobs in design, and uh, and I started working uh, as a location manager and uh, and then a production manager. Uh, I, saw that. I saw yeah, that. I saw that. And you were ADing on a couple of things and you've written and you've, you've got a lot. I didn't do that much ADing. I didn't, I, I did, I mean, I did it on some small shoots, but I didn't do ADing. I did, uh, I mean, I later, later on progressed to doing a lot of second unit directing. But, mm. but initially what happened was um, after a couple of years in New York, uh, one of the people that I knew moved out to California and he got a job on a Fox film called Not Fade Away, which was uh, sort of the Buddy Holly story. Hmm. And he asked me to come down to Mississippi because he knew I was from the South and be the location manager. And uh, I did. And I met the art director on the show. They, you know, at that point, they were very... Uh, this was in 95. Uh, they were very parsimonious about giving out production design credits. And... Uh, so despite the fact that he was the head of department, he was the, he was still called the art director. Right. And that's a, a guy named Jim Spencer. I don't know if you know him. Oh, yeah, I know his name. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and Jim and I really hit it off well. Um, we were both gamblers. <laughs> hey, all right. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, we take our per diem money and just uh, and, and play poker, play backgammon, play, oh, we're just ridiculous. And then we, uh, we also had a lot of fun. Uh, in the Jackson, Mississippi area, and uh, 
and I and I worked really well with him as a location manager because I would you know I would propose locations and I'd give him sketches on how the layout was and how it worked and eventually uh, the he director was like, Jerry you're doing Friedman, my job <laughs> what's that he's like oh you're doing my job <laughs> uh, no I mean I, I, I didn't I didn't have any idea who did what to whom no. I mean, you know I just figured you know well, this is he wants a location I can show him how it works you know and uh, and um, and later on, I worked with him as uh, as an art director on uh, on this um, four hour. It was called an NBC Big Event. It was sort of a mini series, but it was on the life of Dr. Martin Luther King. King, right? King. And uh, I did that in Macon, Georgia. But um, anyway, I you know I I. Uh, I met him. We got along really well, and Fox decided that the the movie itself was too political. It was uh, it wasn't the one with Gary Busey, which was the one that was eventually made about the Buddy Holly story. This one actually had Gary Busey in it, but he played J. I. Allison, who was the drummer for the Buddy Holly. Oh, wow. And uh, and this story was about the fact that uh, what's his name Friedman, the uh, impresario, who first heard. Buddy Holly's test recordings, he booked them sight unseen, thinking they were black. This is a true story, and they and they and uh, and and booked them on these tours of the South. Well, they were just good old Texas boys, a little bigoted, and uh, <laughs> and so they found them. They came to New York thinking they'd broken into the big time, and they were booked with all these uh, black R and B artists doing this tour of the South. And the whole time they're touring the South with these black R and B artists, their their song. Uh, not fade away was taking off in the charts and they were getting really famous so they were drawing all these white crowds as well and you know there was all the separation of uh that's that's probably a great story like just just close your eyes and just listen and enjoy and who cares if if you i mean it's it's, it sounds like a great story i I had no idea i've a really good story i've only ever seen the buddy i've only ever seen the buddy holly uh yeah yeah. which is a little sugar-coated but uh Anyway, Fox pulled the plug on it three weeks into shooting. And uh, and before I left, Jim said, uh, well, I tell you what, why, why don't you come out to uh, Hollywood and uh, and I'll hire you. I'll, I'll, I'll work with you. As a, you know, as come on out to Hollywood. <laughs> They're giving so, it away. Uh, I went back to New York. I was newly married at the time. And mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and I got, got, a, got a car and drove out to Hollywood just to sort of test the waters and see what it was like. And I slept on Jim's... Uh, Jim's living room floor, <laughs> and I decided that's where I should be because New York was really tough. You know, I didn't I didn't know anybody there, and yeah, getting into this theater scene, I was I was looking to you know design for theater, and and that would have been almost impossible for me to get in. I wasn't that talented, you know. <laughs> it's just, well, I, I I didn't I didn't come in with any kind of credentials, and I realized you know without a Harvard degree, uh, a Harvard degree, or at least something out of New York. In New York. I just didn't know anybody, and I couldn't, I couldn't do it. Yeah. So I decided to come out to La, Los Angeles, and um, and I and I did a lot of stuff. I worked as a production manager. I did Kentucky Fried Movie as a production. I, I did uh, some, you know, good old boy drive-in movies um, as sort of the art department. <laughs> you know, I was props, set deck, and painter. You know, right there on these uh, one hundred and fifty thousand dollar movies that got shown in. Uh, in the southern uh doing everything you just do everything there's no there's no there's no lines of what you can and cannot do you just get it done and eventually uh migrated into um doing uh some episodic work i did this thing called 240 robert which was uh jim had uh, designed the the pilot and then he didn't want to do the series and so i took over the series and I started working in episodic TV and also doing. Um, we had TV I movies, right? Continued doing uh, sort of real, real low budget TV. features. Wow. But um, but it, it introduced me to this whole group of people. I did a lot of black black movies because at the time, uh, the uh, the black Cheryl Kearney. I don't know if you know of. I do. Her. I do. A sweetheart. She's a wonderful. She's a doll. Wonderful decorator. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And uh, and gosh, I can't remember all the other names, but you know when the black movies would come around and they'd offer them to the black decorators and the black art directors, they didn't want to do them. 
because they didn't want to get pegged as you know just doing black stuff. They right. were they were you know world class talents, and they wanted to do the big shows. Right. So uh, they needed somebody to do it, and I came from the south. So I wound up doing "Don't Look Back," the story of Satchel Paige, and uh, um, uh, and then King with uh, with Jim Spencer, and then uh, and then uh, through the contacts that I'd met, people I'd met, I got uh, hooked up with Norman Lear and Alex Haley on an episodic thing called the Palmerstown USA, and it was semi autobiographical from Alex about him growing up in the in the segregated south yeah i was looking into that because i had never heard of it but i was looking like oh when was this on i i didn't i mean i, I had never heard of it yeah it was 78 and, and and we only did the pilot and we did six six to eight one hour episodes and that was it but it's been it's been rebroadcast occasionally it's it's sweet and uh yeah and i have to say it was it was it was really um, life-changing for me because Alex Haley was one of the best rock tours I'd ever met. Right. He could tell a story and he would just be mesmerized. And I loved, loved working with him. Alex. Anyway, uh, yeah. this is, believe it or not, this is going to lead back to E.T. No, <laughs> this, is all, this is what I want to hear. This is, this is yeah. what I'm in for. So Alex was really, really special. And, and so was uh, uh, Norman. Norman Lear, but I, I had much more dealings with uh, Alex. The show required uh, lots of principal sets, and uh, and it also uh, meant that we had to build a little southern town, mm. and uh, which was great. Um, and we built it out at the, the, Disney, the old Disney Ranch on Plaza Rita Canyon. And uh, yeah, they don't they don't have many pictures of it on IMDb either. No. Well, you, uh, anyway, oh, what happened was uh, we had the sets at uh, what are now called Culver City Studios. At the time, they were called Laird International. And Laird International was the old Selznick studio. Right. And, uh, and it was uh, rare in that it, there was the, the old Samuel Golan lot, which was in Hollywood. And then there was the old Selznick studios, which were now Culver City and part of the Sony complex. And... Uh, those were the two big independent lots. There were non-signature lots. They were just sort of, you could four-wall it. You could come in, just rent the stages and shoot whatever you wanted to. And you didn't have to have to be a union signatory. Uh, and um, uh, we had the three largest stages for Palmerstown. And we had, that's where we had this grocery store and, oh and then the, the protagonists and uh, sets. And they were nice sets. Well, Steven Spielberg had come back from uh, from shooting uh, Raiders of the Lost mm -hmm. Ark in Tunisia, and uh, and he had one more picture to do in a three picture deal he had with with Universal, and there was an impending DGA strike, so his strategy was to possibly get stage space at an independent lot and do it as a negative pickup. Hmm. So that he continue, he could sign a sweetheart deal if the DGA went on strike and um, and uh, and then keep production done. going, yeah. keep going. Smart. So, so he went down to look at all these stages, and they took him for a tour of the three largest stages at uh, Laird International Studios, and there were my sets, <laughs> and he liked the sets, and he was touring it with the guy that he hoped would shoot the movie. Guy named DP named Alan Davio, mm -hmm. and Alan said, "Yeah, these are nice sets, and there's even room to light them." Because I mean, remember, as a theater designer, I'm right. I light it as well. Right. So uh, I got added to the list of people to interview. That's awesome, and that's and, like your whole portfolio was in front of them. You didn't even have to like show them anything. <laughs> yeah, and also Stephen at that point had. Uh, uh, George Lucas lectured him and taught him how to make movies inexpensively mm. on, on Raiders. He taught him, taught him how to storyboard, taught him how to plan ahead. And, uh, and Stephen was really very keen to do a really cheap movie that was good. <laughs> and he figured, you know, why not let's hire this guy? And, you know, or at least at that point, it was let's consider this guy because I was TV they could paint me scale. Right. And I mean, I made less than the still photographer on the set on that one. <laughs> oh my God. Isn't that awful? <laughs> so anyway, 
no, it's not awful. I mean, at that point, I would do anything to work with all the Steven Spielberg movies. True. So uh, they got they went through delays, they went through this, they went through that. But I just hung in there. I just kept turning work down, and uh, and eventually uh, he hired me. Well, I mean, one thing I noticed that I hadn't before is the lighting in the film, and mm-hmm. and I think just watching it more with a with a decorator eye just how the sources are really the only things lit in the room. Like when, even when they're in the kitchen and you have that like huge light there, the puddles of light in the room and everything, or how E.T. sort of kept in darkness a lot of the film and not until that that little probably like second act when they're comfortable with them and it's more comic, like comedy-ish, do you get to see E.T. You don't really get to see him a lot in the first, mm-hmm. you know, the first uh, first act of the movie. And except for mom's face, you don't see any adult faces until and, uh, yeah. the very end when you reveal that Peter Coyote is who he is. It's just keys. There's keys dangling. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I, um, I mean. And that's all very sort you, you, you know, you, and that, that's the whole thing about dramatic design is I'm used to very, very sourcey, you know, very specific partial imagery and you do that through light more than anything else yeah sometimes you can do it through geography but and volumes but most of the time you do it with light so light is a uh, you know is an extraordinarily important component of design yeah. and and collaborating with it like you can design for that but then it might not be shot that way which is you know alan alan became a very close friend as a matter of fact starting uh, with et he and I and the location manager on the show, uh, Dick Vane, who went on to become a producer. I got him his first job as a producer, as a matter of fact. Oh, he owes you. And uh, we used to have, uh, we used to have uh, lunch every Christmas Eve together. Oh, that's and, sweet. Uh, and Alan died this year of uh, COVID. Oh, oh, man. That's really sad. Oh, my gosh. That is... Well, last so year, not this year. So sad. And have... And you worked with them again? I can't remember. Oh, yeah. With, uh, you, you did Alan and I did, uh, did uh, Falcon and the Snowman together. We did, um, we did Harry and the Hendersons together. And Always? And all, No, Always was Mikhail Sullivan. Oh, was oh, also oh. a really good DP. Yeah. I, uh, most of the time, I have really, really good, close relationships with the DP. So only rarely that I run into, you know, the, the old-fashioned assholes. Yeah. yeah. Afraid and, of you know, white. they're the ones that say, you know, don't. Don't tell me where to put the camera, you know, art boy. Yeah, and you know, then we'll I... figure, I'll figure it out with the director. You know, those are they're nuisances. They're no. just uh, and uh, it... don't stop moving my scenery. It's much easier to move your camera. <laughs> oh God, I worked with Andre Bartoliak one time, <laughs> and, uh, and we built this house for Dan- Danny DeVito on Twins, and <laughs> they said did the setup with Ivan Reitman, and they, they figured out what the first move of the next day was. So we all left, and I came back just to check on the set, and I was gobsmacked they had basically taken a chainsaw and gone a little off camera right eh, a little off camera left eh, and they cleared everything else out except what was in the shot what? and and it was filled with lights and the, and the gaffer saw my reaction he said oh you haven't read andre's book cooking with light <laughs> he says don't you know that andre bartoyak doesn't use a, a light meter he uses a thermometer oh my <laughs> <laughs> it's the sun. I like to say it's the sun. The sun's in the room. You get so yeah. hot. It's the sun is here. It's he pretty bright. amazing. I mean, he's a really good DP, but he was not a good collaborator, and he was, yeah, he was very arrogant. Um, but. when you, when you have that relationship with a DP, and um, does does it help to say yes to the next project? Because then you know you're. You know your stuff's gonna look good. At least you know you're. No, I, I, you know, there, there are. I, I like working with uh, similar people, especially when we have similar aesthetics, and and we and we work out a style of working together. Yeah. I think I've done five or six movies with Robert Ellswit. Um, you know, I just worked with Martin Rue, who I really enjoyed working with. I, I'll work with him again in, yeah. in a heartbeat, and. Uh, and Faden Papa Michael, he's fantastic. And yeah, both. I, I just, I really enjoy the collaboration. It's, it's extremely satisfying. Yeah. When I can talk with uh, DP about, you know, what the intent is and how we, what the most efficient way to get it, you know. Yeah. 
you know, you're, you're always designing spaces and volumes, not only for what they're going to look like, but also for how you move the camera around it. Yeah. Because that's part of the visual language of the film. I think I, I'm actually, I mean, I've worked with some really good DPs, um, but I'm on this drama now, and it's, it's being shot like a 70s sort of noir, very dark, very, just very slight light in the room that's a practical. And it's, it's really been a great working experience with the DP I'm with, um, just the collaboration of like the lampshades and like, well, what, how dim can we get this? And like, well, this scene, we really want just like a tinge over here. And, and it's, it's very collaborative in a way that I'm not used to, but I really love because the, the decoration is really being shot and really being used as part of the, the, the scene and the story in this particular project. So I'm, I'm all about like lighting and like, <laughs> I'm all about it I'm, right now. Yeah. I'm, I'm really enjoying well, it. You know, when I, when I teach production design, that's one of the things that I encourage everybody who has aspirations is get a camera out. Really understand light and understand the importance of light, not only in terms of the way that it that it lights the environment, but in the way that it lights the actors and the actors' faces. Yeah. You've got to establish in a very unpresupposing way those light sources that later will give you the images that you want that'll forward the story. And uh, and, and I mean. When I work with a decorator, it's the same thing. I know where the light sources need to be, and I know what kind of light sources they need to be, whether they're hard or windows or stratified light. Uh, you know, that's that's something that I just don't leave to chance. It's yeah. got to be there inherently. And when, and I like doing lighting studies, you know, in, especially in 3D, which I share with the DP and, mm -hmm. and stay, say, you know, well, this is how I'm th seeing it lit. But you know, what do you want to do? Yeah. And uh, and. You know, I'd, I'd say for the past 10 years, especially, I've been working mostly with SketchUp or Blender, you know, and, uh, and using V-Ray. And these are really, really great tools to oh, yeah. experiment with, you know, that way you don't have to sit there and have full-scale models and yeah. <laughs> move the lights around, you know. There, there's also, too, when, you know, it's scripted, like, early morning and you start playing with light or scenery in time of day, I mean, it's things change, things can change to enhance the scenes also. And so doing those models of what time of day it will be or whatnot is like super helpful, at least like lighting of, of like, I'm sure with the DP coming through, like the shears and how's this gonna shaft in or we don't want shears, we want blinds, all that. So it's- Well, you know, when Alan and I worked on, uh, on ET together, you know, it was a fairly low budget film. It was a 10, 10.5. Million. And uh, and that was one of the ways of bringing uh, really interesting textures. You know, everything everything that was lit had yeah. texture to it. And you, you know, you saw that in the uh, backyard shed with the lattice work and the single source inside that exploded out with light. Yeah. And then uh, inside, when uh, when the when the when the uh, security forces came to invade the house. Yeah. You know, you saw the casement, the open casement uh, uh, draperies that mm -hmm. had the same kind of light. And also in Elliot's room, you know, all Venetian blinds, you know, they were yeah. those small mini levelers. Uh, and you pointed out. I love, I love yeah, those you asked blinds. Me about the, uh, the multicolored <laughs> thing. That, that was my idea. Oh, dude, it I was, uh, I begged my mom. I begged her at some time, like, I want those blinds. I want those, like, rainbow blinds. And I never had them. And then every time I watch a movie, I'm like, oh, I wish I had those blinds. I love them. <laughs> we had to have them custom made. I mean, Jackie Carr had them made. Yeah. And she was a great, is a great, is a great decorator. Great decorator. I, don't, I don't even know if she's working anymore. Yeah. I don't think so. And she's retired. Yeah, I, I believe she is. Um, yeah, I... I but watching watching it again it's just i also wanted to know did you shoot that in santa clarita where did you shoot that uh you mean the, the exterior, exterior. Of the house yeah oh no that's in sunland it's in sunland yeah and, and then there's a interesting story that goes with that too <laughs> okay so i get hired on et and uh kathy kennedy is her first is her first job as a producer she's been steven's assistant up until this point and she said, "Well, Stephen's already picked a house, and he's uh, and he wants um, 
and 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 then she handed me Ralph McQuarrie's uh, oh. painting of the uh, of the spaceship. Oh, oh yeah. And, uh, and Ralph McQuarrie's a brilliant artist. Yeah, phenomenal. And Stephen has said, "I want it like a Christmas tree one." It so does, does look like that. Bulb, and it looked like a Christmas tree. Yeah. One. So you know, the more we went over the action. Um, oh, anyway. So I look. I went out. Uh, he was he was actually directing Poltergeist at that point. You know, there was always that. There was always a controversy. You're too young to know about this, but Toby Hooper was the director of Record, but Stephen directed it. Oh. And he was out in uh, Simi Valley doing it, and the house that he picked for ET was out in Simi Valley. So I went and looked at it, and it was really a bad case. It was this, you know, it was this Tudor, uh, you know, sort of this half timber kind of mm. faux thing that was right up against the hill. There was no depth to it. And uh, and I called Kathy up because I wasn't talking to Stephen then; he was directing. And I said, "Look, I, you know, with all due respect, I understand." why he picked that it looks just like the boulder guy's house and that's what he's working on right now but i really think what we want is an ordinary looking house but we want the ordinary on the edge of the extraordinary we have to be on the border of magic mm. and she said i'll talk with Stephen." and then she came back and she said he said you have a week <laughs> now I'm, I'm like oh boy and I didn't realize, of course, you know, if I didn't find it in a week, if I didn't find a good one, a replacement in a week, I was out of there. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I, was, I was, I was canned. But anyway, uh, the location manager was this guy, Dick Bain. And I said, you know what? Remember, ordinary on the edge of the extraordinary. Let's look at new development that's against mountains and against, you know, it just looks like it's on the border. Yeah. And so he took the north side of the valley. I took the south side of the valley. We started looking. <laughs> You're just knocking before. on doors? <laughs> well, not, not even knocking knock on doors. Just driving around looking for the ordinary on the edge of the extraordinary. Mm. And he was the one who found it. It was, a, it was like a small street that had newer houses, uh, you know, 70s and 80s houses. And the rest of the neighborhood was like 40s and 50s. Mm. But he found that one house that was right there up against the mountains and it looked like he could go out that backyard and suddenly be in this magical redwood forest because they don't really say where it is i no, mean it's, it's amorphous yeah because then even i was like because he points to it on the map we are here and he's pointing to northern sort of california and i was like oh maybe he's just pointing but location wise i thought it was there I always remember thinking, isn't it the weirdest thing that those trash cans are up on this hill falling down towards them? Yeah. But you have to have that action. You have to know that, oh, it's maybe it's just coyotes up in that hill. You have to have that up there. Yeah. There's a fire road when all that was built anyhow. That, all of that stuff is built. That, so the backyard is built, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't look anything like the location. It's all designed specifically for the air. Because the other thing is, is there's corn stalks there. <laughs> it's like... Well, you had to have a reveal of E.T. Yeah. <laughs> no. And I love, I mean, the whole forest and him in the in the little river. And it's like, that's not, that's not L.A. But it is. It, but it, it isn't. It it's the movie, what the movie is really all about is it documents a transition. It documents Elliot's transition from childhood magical thinking to the beginnings of adult rational thought yeah it's and that's what it is and so you have to have a lot of magical thinking in there oh yeah because you're you know you're with elliot the whole way as, as he goes through this process and he says goodbye to his childhood self reminding himself that he's right here this is child he's gonna you know he's got his inner child oh listen i cried i cried last yeah. night i cried it's but uh, but he has to become an adult he's got to come to terms with the reality of the divorced parents and uh all the things that adults have to start to face it's also to design of the of the spaceship and the door closing like right on the heart and seeing it is so tear-jerking <laughs> yeah so well wonderful i designed it just basically basically like a you know a lens shutter mm. so that it could come right down onto the hard light and uh and uh, and it was it was just cardboard you know, I was in back of that during the closing. I was actually doing it. No, no, it was it was just levers. Oh my gosh! And uh, and also, you know, if you when you look, I'm still getting embarrassed looking at that uh, that gate that never quite swung out all the way. 
uh, you know, the uh, the open the ramp that goes. Oh up. yeah. Because that's just that's just like fencing. You know? oh, I didn't I didn't see that at all. But that's I mean, that spaceship to me is like it, it as you said like he wanted it like a Christmas ornament. It's so childlike. Mm-hmm. It, when you look at it, you're like, oh, it's so bulbous, and it's like it's not going to hurt you. It's not. It's not aggressive. It's really designed so, like, with children in mind. I feel like. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we made the, we we made up. Uh, Melissa used to come by, and we'd always have a beer hour at six in the, in the evening. We drank San Miguel beer. We we'd nice. make up all these backstories about ET and <laughs> how, how they uh, how they, uh, they they came from this uh, you know a gardening planet. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> dropping by to pick up specimens, and and uh, and he's just you know this gentle little soul that does that and. You know, she brought that to William Cotswold, who wrote the novelized it, mm-hmm. and took all the all the backstory that we made up in the art department during those uh, sort of oh my god, that's so great, and uh, and put it put it in the novel. Oh my god, that's so great. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm gonna jump way ahead. Now, do you reference that spaceship at all when you're doing the Midnight Sky? Like, are you are you do you think about that? Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, the thing the thing about uh, the ET spaceship was it was magical. Um, and if if you want to think of it in those terms, the Midnight Sky spaceship. Let me back up just a moment here. Yeah, yeah. To really give you the, the full the full story, because remember when I said Stephen came back from Tunisia and uh, and was looking for a place to do ET. Well, there's another component to that story, which was that before he left, he hired this futurist named Ron Cobb, who had designed the interior of the spaceship for Close Encounters, the special edition. Mm. Really great futurist and a really interesting uh, political cartoonist. Um, And he hired Ron to do a movie called um, Night Skies which is about aliens and, and uh, Rick Baker was going to do all the, the uh, creatures and John Sales wrote the script. Oh, wow. Well, Stephen came back and he looked at all everything that they'd done, but he had been talking to Melissa, who was living with Harrison Ford at the time and was in Tunisia with them when they were doing Raiders and had decided he wanted to make it as a kid's movie and not a horror movie. So he broomed them all out. He got rid of them. And Columbia, Columbia the studio, was really pissed off because they'd been developing this and they really liked what they were doing. So they put the project in turnaround. And that's when Universal got E.T. Oh, wow. As the fulfillment of, uh, of E.T. Of, uh, of his deal. Yeah, I just think what's your thing. And so um, anyway, uh, the guy that he fired, Ron, uh, still good. he was a fantastic guy, a really, really amazing fellow. And, uh, and uh, he... Um, went off in production design, Conan the Barbarian. Well, while we're doing E.T., he came back and dropped by the set to, uh, to say hi to Stephen. And, uh, and Stephen said, well, you got to go meet my, our production designer. So Ron came by the art department, and this was the beginning of a lifelong friendship. Oh. Ron and I, uh, we did several projects together, and we were really close friends. Um, and I bring him up because he passed away this year as well. But Ron was uh, Ron was an amazing designer, and he developed the language, basically the Hollywood language for spaceships, because he designed the Nostromo in Alien. Oh, and you know, and that sort of set the template. Every every movie, space movie since since then looks like the Nostromo. Even when you get to uh, what was it, Sunshine? The, oh yeah, the, I love Sunshine. I love yeah, that but song. that's that's Ron. Those are that's a Ron Cobb right. flying house kind of spaceship and even a lot of uh of uh uh, Ch- uh chambliss uh scott chambliss, scott chambliss. you know in star trek very very similar kind of language you know making very industrial looking and yeah and and george had said to me on midnight sky he really wanted it to look different he didn't know how i know That's so hard. i sort of wrestled with it because you know here here the, the the sort of default in Hollywood is go to a Ron Cobb like spaceship, 
and uh, and, and Ron's Ron's designs, incidentally, incidentally very much uh, prescient in the sense that you know, he designed these things in the mid seventies, and uh, and once you got to the International Space Station, they don't look that much different. You know, it's got that same kind of aesthetic. Right. Um, so how do we get to the next level of design? Was my question to myself. And I started doing some homework into what could possibly, what are the, what are the major problems and how could they be addressed through design? Two major problems for deep space travel and, uh, and something that, uh, the, the designers right now are wrestling with. One is you got to protect human inhabitants from radiation. It's a big problem. The uh, deep space radiation is lethal. And so you have to ha you have to be able to, uh, to protect it. The second is long-term space travel is really, really hard on the human body because weightlessness is really bad for you, turns out. You, your heart is meant to be with gravity, you right. know, and pump, pump blood through your body. So how do you get gravity? You know, and that's, that's one of the conceits of the Ron Cobb School of Spaceship Design is everybody takes a gravity pill or there's some sort of thing <laughs> that, you know, that, uh, that uh, you know, resolve, resolves the gravity problem. And this there isn't anything. Einstein said there is nothing except centrifugal force that mimics right. that mimics uh, gravity. So that was uh, that was the two things that I, now I have to work with. And the, where ET played into it was a little bit the sack, the, the whole idea of a little mini world. Right. And, and in, in in Lily Brooks Dalton's book, she calls it Little Earth. So I thought, well, you know, wouldn't this be interesting? Because one of the big problems in building those, you know, those big Werner von Braun kinds of rings that spin around and you have centrifugal force and you're always working on a, walking on a curved uh, surface. Right. Wouldn't it be interesting? I mean, those are impossible to build because you can't get all that material up into space. You know, and even when you look at, uh, at 2001 and, uh, and the, uh, the Jupiter probe that, uh, that you see later on in 2001 where he's doing the jog, Right. The, the radius is impossibly short to try to, to uh, the, ra the radius of the circle is impossibly short. You'd never You'd be able to do it. Gravity. And not only that, it's going like this and the spaceship's moving this way. So the, anybody jogging there would keep bouncing <laughs> up. They just don't go in arcs. And so they were trying to simulate in 2001 something that is possible, but they couldn't build in order to circle to make the, you know, build that circular uh, set so that you can actually see them running around on it. Right. They built it as big as they could in the largest stage of Pinewood. But it's all, it's all wrong. Right. <laughs> well, was say, all right, you have a really long baton to get the radius out there and spin it around relatively fast. And you can mimic, you can mimic, uh, and, and now, all right, so if that's the design principle, then, then you, you want to maximize as much as possible at the end where the centrifugal force is, the space that uses centrifugal force. Mm. And so that's why you have, it's, so, it's sort of, it can either look like uh, uh, fallopian tubes or it can look like, mm. you know, testicles or whatever, you know, it, it looked called like, many different things. I mean, to me, it looked like an exploded flower. It yeah. Looked, it, it looked very organic and very beautiful. That comes from a design principle called topological optimization. Okay. And topological optimization is basically a, you use supercomputers and you feed in to the supercomputers all the information about stress points and everything else. The design principle of, uh, of the ether in midnight, in midnight sky is that they have developed within the next 15 years layered fabrics that protect from radiation and also are lightweight for getting up into space and a lot less expensive than a hard shield. Mm. And those fabrics basically cover and hold the gas and hold, our, hold the atmosphere into the spaceship. And they have an exoskeleton that hold, keeps them from flying off as they're spinning around. That exoskeleton is topologically optimized and it's designed and it has that really organic look. Mm. And the exoskeleton goes up the shaft and then it comes to a collar and then it goes around and holds the large bags of air where the big uh, living habitats are. And, and then it holds the, uh, 
uh, the uh, structural pieces that do, you know, water processing and air, you know, atmospheric cleansing and all of that. And the other thing that they do is they address a similar problem that is uh, that is a problem with creating centrifugal force. You've got this thing going around and around, hmm. and that affects navigation. If it's consistent, then you don't really have a problem. You, you compensate for it in, in the way that you sort of hurl your way through space. However, you've got people inside moving around. Right. And the mass is constantly shifting, and so that really affects navigation. How do you deal with that? Well, I'm saying this exoskeleton has sensors on all the floors and knows exactly where everybody is and how much they weigh and constantly shifts the floors wow. so that it doesn't affect navigation. Now, are you up for a job at NASA at this point from learning? <laughs> <laughs> are you JPL? Like, where are you? Where do you think you're going to go with this? <laughs> well, I, I was interested as a matter of fact you know i i did contact the uh entertainment and what is it the uh, entertainment you know the the, uh, the science uh, science interface uh, uh let's see probably have what are their emails oh, uh, i don't know anyway they tried to put me in touch with people uh, spacecraft design but they, they just didn't get back to me quickly enough so i did some homework and that's that's how i came up with this but after it was designed i did run it by an astrophysicist and he said it was a good idea it's a good good design so you're the next I, you're I the next care. generation that looked like it could exist and look cool you know oh ultimately that was it. but even even how you brought you were saying like that exoskeleton it, it looks like it's inside with all that sort of webbing it is yeah because it's, because it's remember beautiful. you have an exoskeleton that keeps the whole thing from flying off in the space and the endoskeleton supports the floors hmm so it's, it's a little bit like one of those three-tiered fruit baskets that you hang in your kitchen. Right. You know, a wire one. Only you're swinging it around like this. Right. And it stretches out. And, uh, and then you have staircases that go up and down. And, uh, and, but those, it's, just, it's, it's the thing that's the most lightweight that can still support the, the weight of the floors. And that's what that's supposed to represent. And it also probably adjusts. Right. And that was one of the things that I wanted to do in post was to to really make it feel almost like a clipper ship flying through space, you yeah, know, because yeah. you hear the creaking as somebody moves around, you know, yeah. the, the endoskeleton adjusts and, and you do see the fabric, you know, when the, uh, when the meteor field, yeah. when the debris field hits the spaceship, you see it hit the surface and bounce off the fabric. That's a, that's part of that design, which makes it uh, sort of viable is it absorbs the shock rather than breaking if it was a hard surface. It has to be, a, I mean, a, a tremendous amount of research to how this works, like you were explaining, plus how do humans interact with this, plus the script, the drama of it, then the lighting. I mean, a spaceship to me is probably the, the thing I want to do, like, least. <laughs> like, I feel like yeah. that's a lot of pressure doing spaceships <laughs> well there is and you know that and it goes back to what we were talking about with ron's spaceship and establishing a language you know i think that's why you establish that language is it's a short it's a shorthand for for people to just say well this is oh, the way spaceship. spaceships are going yeah. in hollywood there it is and, spaceship. And, the, and the audience will understand what this is and that was the scary part of the midnight sky design was it made sense to me but i didn't know how it would read other people would go well that's bullshit you know oh no i think it's i i definitely think it is it elevated the design to the next to the next level and we're there like it needed it so bad you can't keep seeing and as as beautiful as other spaceships are designed and everything it is it's the big big window and it's it's like it it needed a t a, a test <laughs> to be upgraded, and I think you've done it beautifully. And I don't know how you came up with all that, but I think it's beautiful. <laughs> and, 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 no, I'd, like to, I'd like to actually follow through with that design because there's a lot of stuff that I discovered that we just didn't have time to. Oh yeah, I'm yeah. sure. It would be nice to take that to that that design concept to another level. I don't think that one's getting a part two though. <laughs> I don't no. think they're getting a sequel, but <laughs> you know, it's funny. Uh, you were you brought up, um, you know, there are all there are a couple of other little, um, um, how to say it, uh, 
you know, when you when you plant things, what are those called? Uh, like, cherries. Uh, organics of like. No, when you when you when you plant, uh, people are always looking for things inside of movies that are sort of. Oh, like something. Easter eggs. Easter eggs. Yeah. yeah. I went, it's an Easter egg from Rocketeer. And it's also from E.T., but the Easter egg from Rocketeer is if you look at the back shield, that oh. looks like the floor floor pattern in Rocketeer. Oh, wow. That's and you know, the floor pattern in Rocketeer, uh, you had asked, I forgot what your question was. Oh, yeah, we built that whole thing. We built the whole South Seas Club. That's a total invention. Oh, in the Rocketeer. It's not based on anything except the floor pattern in the center is based on Cedric Gibbons' design for Grand Hotel in 1932. The lobby in Grand Hotel is that has that floor pattern. Oh, you're talking. Wait, you're talking about the Rocketeer and the in Sinclair's house? No, I'm talking about Rocketeer and the South Seas Club. Oh, the South Seas Club. Oh, the big giant club that they're dancing in and having. Yeah, that was that must have been a huge, huge build. And the South Seas. Well, it had to be big because he had to fly around in it. He had to be yeah. sort of as they're shooting machine guns at him and then he goes up through the skylight. Yeah. So that sort of dictated how big the thing had to be. Man. And uh, it, it had to be relatively big, but then we took advantage of it to, to do those really romantic scenes with Neville Sinclair and she's dancing and the big shell coming up. Yeah. That was cool. And, that, and another little thing in there, I noticed this: the woman who's singing that is Jan from The Office. How do you like that? <laughs> I didn't know that. But yeah. yeah, I can't remember. She has a relationship with Joe. Ah, I wish I could remember exactly what it is. Mm. I, and I forgot. Mm. Uh, I was, I was like, is that Jan? And then I looked her up, and it was um, the Rocketeer. When I, I guess it was like ninety in nineteen ninety or eighty nine, the Rocketeer was out. I think or ninety three. Um, we, we shot. We shot it in. Uh, we shot it in ninety. Ninety. So I think. I think it came out in. Yeah. Ninety one. So at that time, we, my family, we went to Disney World like almost every other year, and their big thing that year was like the Rocketeer, and so they were just promoting it and promoting it, and I remember seeing it at, in the movie theater and being like, "This is like." the coolest movie of this regular guy getting to be this little superhero but to me also seeing the um old hollywood but not in an old movie like it but and for like for like not kids but like for a younger audience it was just like like that dog and the cafe and then i i don't know it, it just made it so much more like attractive to come to hollywood for me of like I just love seeing the old Hollywood. It must have been so much fun to like design that. Oh, it was a ball. I, yeah. I, I think it's, it's still one of my favorite movies that I've worked on. It's really and, sweet. Uh, and whenever I can, we get it. We get it shown at some film festival, and I drag Joe along with me. <laughs> you should. It's awesome. It's, it's fun for us to to talk about it. He says he says he could probably redo it and cut about ten minutes out of it, and it'd be a better movie. But I love it. I just. I watched, I like it. I said, I watched it with my daughter. She's the one who started watching it. I, I walked by and went, you're watching The Rocketeer? What's going on here? I sat down and I got I got pulled right in. Alan Arkin is so good in it. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's really good. He's really funny. And then all of a sudden, and then it's like a Nazi thing. And you're like, oh, wow. This, we re- yeah. We're learning yeah. lessons here. accent suddenly comes out. He suddenly starts speaking with a tongue. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's, uh, that's. Awesome. I also rewatched Harry and the Hendersons, which I've seen probably a million times. I mean, I could probably ask you really dumb questions about Harry and the Hendersons because I just want to know everything I can about it. But as with E.T. and this, you're working with like, I mean, that wasn't really a puppet, but you have elements of these creatures that you have to work into the design. Like he destroyed that whole house. (laughs) Yeah. That was a lot of fun, you know, especially fun? the kitchen, you know, the kitchen floor when he's down in the basement. Yeah, the kitchen floor is fantastic. <laughs> but, you know that, that that when he when he does the thing with the door. Yeah, that, the was, door that door. was built in, and it was a it was basically a hydraulic piston. It sucks up, and, uh, and it's uh, and it's a balsa wood lentil and balsa wood molding. So it just pulls it up. So the act, and, yeah. As he's doing it, and, That's awesome. and it cracked beautifully. 
the other problem was, you know, you had John Lithgow, who bears a striking similarity to me in terms of lighting. And he's a, he's a very, very tall man and very, very light. Mm. And, uh, and then we had this extraordinarily tall, dark creature whose eyes are recessed. Yeah. And, and, and nothing but light, light absorbent material around him. How do you light the two of them in one shot? needed a lot of control and that's why you'll see what we that's one of the reasons we picked the craftsman style house mm. was so that when we're in and you'll notice this this on all of the ceilings we use coffered ceilings so you can lift the panels out and get lights in there constantly really light each scene and alan davio lit that one he was uh, that that was a real challenge for him incidentally too you you brought up time of day yeah the hardest things, and it, the, the director, Bill Deere, was not particularly appreciative of how brilliant Alan was. And he used to hate the fact that as we, you know, as we, when Harry first goes in the house, it's dark outside. And by the time the neighbor knocks on the front right, door, it's the morning. It's dawn. You know, yeah. And you're, you're, the whole way through that scene, you're gradually increasing the amount of light inside the house. And that was really, really tough for continuity. You know, and uh, and Alan did a brilliant job. I think you, you felt you, you weren't disturbed by it at all. You know, no. by the time you open the door outside, you're shooting right into a backing there. And pl- uh, yeah, because you're you're destroying the house, and it's becoming yeah. you know it's dawn at the same yeah. time. So I, I can't imagine the resets. Whenever anything's like furniture destroyed, I'm like, oh god, how many do I have to buy? <laughs> yeah, you really got to plan those things out. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Be, it's, it's a military maneuver. Yeah. And, uh, and and uh, and even you know remembering that this was 1986, uh, no digital, there's no digital anything. No. You know it, it, when when he goes when he climbs up the ladder. Yeah. To the second story and he takes the rifle and he's about to shoot Harry and Harry's looking at the the big stolen going we did this yeah <laughs> and you do the reverse on John that's right up against the translate that's a translate of uh, Seattle and uh, it's all in camera. Oh my gosh! It's a. a... I, would never, I, didn't, I wasn't even looking at the translator. I was looking at John Lithgow's eyes. I no, John take Lithgow, my eyes he's off. brilliant. I love it. I love John yeah, Lithgow. He's, he's such a brilliant actor. Um, when, when you did that here and then did exteriors up in the Northwest? Well, remember, all those nighttime exteriors are on stage. That was an interior exterior set, very much like the E.T. set. Wait a the minute. whole backyard was built on on stage at Universal. But not when they're running through the forest, right? Uh, oddly enough, you know, later on, in, you know, when it's cold. Yeah, without the snow. They had things. an early spring in. Uh, <laughs> of course they in did. In Seattle, and all the snow melted. <laughs> of course they did. <laughs> yeah, and and we didn't know what to do, and then finally I said, you know what? Let's let's call the ice capades. We called the ice capades, and they had portable uh, ice rinks that we rented and we put them on stage at Universal and we brought the trees in and we put our own snow in and that's how we got all the stuff for the making the footprints. No way. Wow, you are really smart. I would have never thought to call the the ice capades. <laughs> that's an, that's awesome. Did did were you kind of like, uh, I don't wanna work I don't wanna do another movie with a like a puppet or like a an animal again? Like I don't know. It doesn't oh, no, matter. I, I really enjoyed it. I, yeah. mean, I, I mean, I did. I eventually wound up doing Cats and Dogs, which was yeah, I mean, pretty much that's every, version of Harry and the Hendersons. Every animal. I am telling you, you are going to re-listen to this interview. You are going to go back and listen to these stories again. So many inside sign tips. And production stories. I mean, wow, the guy's memory. How about it? I am so off my game in this interview. Um, I, I actually found out about a family member having COVID about 10 minutes before this. And um, so my mind was sort of racing the whole interview. And um, I, I, just, I apologized to Jim afterwards and, and told him why I was just sort of distracted so sorry about that. It's kind of more evident in episode two. Sorry. Um, but I'm so thankful that he gave me his time. And um, today, 
when you're listening to this. I'm recording it Wednesday night, but Thursday morning, ADG nominations are announced. And I really hope they acknowledge his work in the night sky. Um, And Oscar voting starts next week. So, yeah, there's that. I hope hope his work is considered there, too. So I cut this interview into two parts, which means next week, part two, Jim Bissell. Also because you fatigue at about an hour. I know you. I can see your listening habits of this podcast, and I don't really want you to miss any of this conversation, so that's why I'm giving you two parts. So uh, next week, as I said, Jim talks about the Twilight Zone, his uh, feelings about working with CGI in Jumanji and 300, working with George Clooney on films like Good Night and Good Luck and Confessions of a Dangerous Mind and Leatherheads and, and again, Midnight Sky. His beautiful work in the Spiderwood Chronicles with decorator Jan Pascal. And he does describe a $5 million build of a garage for Rogue Nation, the, the Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. And here's a little tidbit. He basically invented previs. <laughs> yeah, get it. Get that. I'm the boy who could fly. Get it. Unbelievable. He's amazing. He is a production design god. Coming up, I'm also going to do an episode about the film Moxie, which I decorated. It comes out on March 3rd on Netflix, directed by Amy Poehler. It's it's a really special little film, and I I hope you catch it. Um, I will do a little like picture pages with it, where you could follow along with some sets, and uh, so that's going to be fun. I hope you got an earful. I'm Kim Wanup for decorating pages. Middle of winter got you down. Start your summer now with a Stogie Floggy luxury pull float. Float them if you got them. Available now on Etsy and stogiefloaty.com.